and their teachers as they go. Hallelujah. We're continuing on in the book of Acts. The change that brought change, man. Wow. Change. What an interesting notion. Maybe in school you learned the first law of motion. Uh, Newton's first law of motion, but maybe you didn't. If you didn't, I'm going to read it for you. We have it up uh, behind me on the board. And it says this. It says, an object at rest stays at rest. And an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and in the same direction. And all that happens unless it's acted upon by an unbalanced force. Something that disrupts it. So there are two clauses that we can look at here, right? One that predicts the behavior of stationary objects, and the other that predicts the behavior of moving objects. So if we could move to the next slide that we have there. Yeah, now you get to see that first law kind of put into practical terms for us, right? You have this object, it's a soccer ball, it's at rest, and it's going to remain at rest until you have a force that acts upon it, and that's an imbalance force. That means that it's not equal to the stationary force that's on that object. It's an imbalance force, going to move it in a new direction. And an object then in motion will continue in constant speed and direction unless acted upon by another imbalanced force, which would be the net, or somebody else that would stop it and redirect it. That's the basic law. I know you didn't come to church today wanting to talk a little bit about physics or learn a little bit about physics, but it's important to note that that law speaks to us about our reality. See, it speaks to us about things that we need to understand. That if I'm at rest, I'm going to stay at rest unless acted upon by an unbalanced force that moves me. And if I'm going a certain direction, and at a certain speed, I'm going to stay going that direction and at that speed unless acted upon again by another unbalanced force that moves me in a new direction. Jesus knew that this law of motion for objects in the universe also applied to human beings and to us when it comes to change, when it comes to growth, when it comes to doing the will of God. Unless we encounter and experience an unbalanced force, that means a force that's going in a different direction at a different speed than we're going and something that's greater than ourselves. Our course, our routines, our perspectives, our tendencies, our hearts and our minds, the way they're shaped by the circumstances that we've experienced, our relationships that we have and how they're going, none of that will change. None of that will grow or be healed unless there is a force that sends us in a new direction. And we've got to be open to that force sending us in a new direction because we can resist it as human beings and we can make choices against it to redirect ourselves. And so that makes it a little more complicated than a soccer ball, doesn't it? A little more complicated than something, an atom, an object in the universe. We know from last week in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, it was the coming of God's promised Holy Spirit who filled the disciples, who had gathered for prayer, who manifested himself, the Holy Spirit, through giving gifts of languages. And it was this infilling, 
and at what were these, these spiritual gifts that were given, that was the change that brought change. Right? We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. That was a change that brought change. But this is a continued change that was bringing change. And man, did this force of the Spirit bring change, didn't it? Somebody say amen to that. It changed the whole direction of these people's lives that it came upon. It changed their capabilities. It, came, it changed their effectiveness. It changed their lives, their ministries. It changed it tremendously. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to read with me in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And let's read about how this force changed, how the Holy Spirit's coming changed all these people. Starting in verse 14. Here's the first. Then Peter, he stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. So the eleven had gathered, but remember, there were more disciples than just that there at the time, and they were all gathered around. But Peter stands up, he raises his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Because they were amazed at what, would, what had happened to this group. The Spirit coming, them speaking in other languages and declaring the wonders of God in their own native tongue. And they were perplexed and they asked, what does this mean? And so now Peter's going to explain it. And he stood up and he announces that. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to me. You know, preachers sometimes have to say that to their audiences. Listen to me. Because you know, as audiences or as spectators, we don't always listen, do we? When people are speaking. And Peter was plain and straight out. This is important. This is your opportunity. Listen to me. Okay? And so this is what he goes on to say. He says, These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So he starts off with a little bit of a joke. <laughs> These people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. You know, we don't eat or drink until after prayer. No, it's only nine. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. See, Peter's figured some things out. And he says, this is what was spoken from the prophet Joel in Joel 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. See, the Spirit's going to come on young and old. Even on my servants, both men and women. It wasn't just going to be a man thing anymore like it mostly was with the old covenant. No. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and billows of smoke. And he's beginning to look at the very last days of the last days. Because we're in the last days right now. But the last day of the last days will be somewhat like that. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's hope. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. And he said it again, because he knew, after so many minutes speaking, people's minds begin to trail again. Listen to this. Because this will change your life. Or it can. There's a force coming, and I want you to receive it. So listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and now he moves to a psalm, a psalm that predicted the, the Savior that would come, the Messiah. I saw the Lord always before me, David says, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of, de of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. See what was to come? He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus, his descendant, to life. And we are witnesses of it. And 500 other people had seen him and seen that he was alive. And he says, we're witnesses of it. He's exalted him to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not, ask, did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. These people have realized something. We're those enemies. And we crucified him. And God has made you now a footstool for his feet because he has raised him. Therefore, Peter says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. How could they do that? He just told them who this was. But they had killed him and nailed him to a cross just days earlier. Wow. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're religious people. They came to worship the God. Their, their lives are dedicated to keeping his law. They're cut to the heart because for the first time they see themselves as culpable of sin, of great sin, and of killing the Messiah that God had sent to them. Wow. Wow. And so they say to the apostles, to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? They're open. They're willing. They're listening. Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as you have seen. It will come. You wait upon Him. He will come. 
The promise is for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off, and it's for all whom the Lord our God will call. This promise is for all mankind. With many other words, he said, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This is your opportunity. Those who accept his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the church that day. You know, there were others that didn't accept it. There were others that said, oh, they've just been drinking. Uh, it'll go away. This, we can move on. This was kind of interesting, but there's, there's other things to do because we're here for a festival. Um, and they moved on. But 3,000 did not. They listened. They paid attention. And they did some other things. How did this unbalanced force move? to such a degree that it created so much change in the lives of so many people. So much change. Richard Lovelace is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I've shared his definition once upon a time, years ago. But he wrote this, that there are preconditions to change and to renewal and revival. And he says that these preconditions have to be addressed before any person or group uh, or church can be renewed can see growth, or can expect to change to the glory of God. There are certain preconditions. And so he states this in his definition. For a believer or church to change, they must first experience insight. They have to become aware. They have to have a revelation. Then, pray a prayer of repentance. And finally, pray a prayer of inquiry concerning God's plan for them. And unless those conditions, he claims, are met, no change occurs. No real change occurs. But if those conditions are met, then change and renewal and revival will occur. It will happen. This is scriptural. If these things happen, change will come. But without these steps, without these elements, it won't happen. It'll just sound good. Oh, that was great and everything will kind of move along as normal, as normal. So let's consider this grid. Let's consider this grid for change. Because you and I both want to experience the change that brings change. I, I, I don't know a person that says, well, really, I don't want to really grow. I don't want to have a victorious life. I don't want to really you know, know more of God's love and power and blessing. I don't think most people would actually say they, they don't want any of that. But the question is, are we really ready and willing, and are we at the place to walk the path to receive that? So let's take a look at this grid for change. And let's take a look at how the Holy Spirit's coming was the one who changed these directions, these capabilities, and the effectiveness of the disciples, their lives and their ministries. So here's the first thing. Did Peter experience God-given insight? Did this apostle, when you looked at this passage, what do you think? And some of these questions are obvious, right? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Why? Because there was most remarkable change in Peter. Look at the first change. He raised his voice in the midst of a crowd, a religious crowd. He showed courage and boldness that was completely in contrast to his three denials, which were only... Weeks behind him. He shows courage and boldness. And what's really interesting about this is he risks 
potential confrontation and even violence from this crowd because this crowd contains some of the very people who crucified the Lord Jesus. And he puts himself out there where he can be confronted. He puts himself out there where he can receive this physical violence and he himself can be taken and put to death. Peter was courageous and bold, even though some in his audience knew of his own failures. And they were in that crowd, and they could have humiliated him because he had failed so, so horribly only weeks before. Wow, what makes a man do that? What makes a person do that? Stand up and stand alone. What makes them do that? People just don't do that and put themselves out there like that. If something doesn't happen to them, and they don't change and believe something different than what they once believed. On the day of Pentecost, people, Peter didn't even teach them like the rabbis usually did, because they usually gather people around at their feet, and then they taught to them in smaller groups. What he did is he proclaimed like a herald. He preached out to the masses that had gathered. And this was a great sermon, wasn't it? He had really, literally had no preparation time. He pretty much had to speak, you know, just from the top of his head and from his life. But yet you could tell that this message was well-ordered. This message, somebody was helping him with it. And he was putting things together because this message came from a life that was well-lived with the Lord. From, from a path of restoration that he took with the Lord after the Lord rose from the dead. For 40 days, Jesus began to meet and teach with his other disciples. And, you, and, and, and for sure, Peter was a part of that. And so Peter had learned some things, and Peter was ready to step up at the time he needed to step up. And the Holy Spirit was there to empower him. And then it's also good to remember, in Acts chapter 2, we only got a small portion that I read of his message that he preached that day. Uh, it says in Acts 2.20, or actually 2.40, that with many other words he testified and exhorted them. So, we know that Peter probably could be long-winded like the rest of us preachers, right? He had many other things that he was telling them, many other things he was saying to escape this, this wicked generation. And he was calling them to task with that. Well, did the people hearing Peter's message, did they experience God-given insight? Well, yeah, they did, didn't they? Our passage says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. I think we'd all agree that that was experiencing insight, wasn't it? Jesus told us in John 16, 8, that it was the Holy Spirit's job to convict sinners of their sin and of their need of forgiveness before God. It was the Holy Spirit who had manifested himself in the outpouring of tongues upon those original disciples who had declared God's wonders and his, his mercies. He's continuing to move, and he's continuing to work and manifest himself through Peter, as Peter preached and witnessed and prophesied. And the result was they were cut to the heart when they realized they had crucified the Messiah. They were cut to the heart. You know, a lot of times when we share the Lord with people, we, we often start by saying, well, you know, God loves you. I've done that so many times. Because I think it's important for people to know that God loves them. But you know, there are a lot of people out there. They don't even care that God loves them. They don't even know why that's even important. 
In fact, one, one old commentary person said, it says it's hard to heal somebody who doesn't know that they're, they're sick or they're broken. And some people just don't. They have no idea that they're sick or they're broken. This crowd that had gathered, they were the religious elite. They were the pilgrims who traveled. <laughs> they didn't know that they had any problem with God. They saw themselves as righteous and holy. And so Peter had to tell these righteous and holy people, you're not. All your works are like filthy rags. You're not. You've done this all on your own. In fact, what you've done in addition to this is you killed and murdered the, the Messiah that God himself sent. You took God's Son from him and mistreated him. And that's got to hurt. And people need to know that. I needed to know that before I accepted Christ. I've heard so much about God's love, I had this idea that God probably did love me. But what I had to come to grips with is that I was lost. And until I said to the Lord, God, when are you ever going to save me from me? And, and I said to the Lord, I'm sorry for my rebellion against you. I'm sorry I've tried to be God of my own life. And I realized it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross just as it was those people who crucified him. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever come to grips with that? How much mercy and grace has to be shown to you to be saved? That you don't deserve nor are you entitled to any grace whatsoever? Under justice? Under justice? What would you do to somebody who killed your son and misused them and did it without any reason to do so? Well, I just won't tell you what, what I could have been capable of and what I might still be capable of. And you would not have batted an eye. You would not have batted an eye. But, God, but these people, they saw it. They saw what they did. They saw how lost they were. They saw how great God's grace and love was to provide a way out for them. Wow! See, when you know how sinful you are, now you can see how gracious God is, too. Amen? And they saw it. And they were blown away by it. How could you love me? How could you save me? How could you accept me? But he does. He does. They experienced insight, didn't they? They experienced awareness. And because of it, they were changed. These people were changed. Well, we've got to keep moving on. The next step in our grid says this. From our earlier definition, you have to experience, from experiencing insight, then you've got to pray a prayer of repentance. Because it's one thing to know you're a sinner. It's one thing to know you need to be saved. There are a lot of people that know that, but they never take a next step. They never actually repent. They never actually repent before the Lord. Right? Repentance says this. See, and, and we have to ask that question, did Peter pray a prayer of repentance? Well, repentance means this. It means to turn around, to go in a different direction. Do you see how it applies to our little physics lesson? If I get hit by a force that gets my attention, shows me my need to move in a different way, 
and I received that, I've repented. Because now I'm going in a new direction. A new direction. And that's what it means to repent. To turn around or to go in a different direction. The Holy Spirit has come. This greater balance, this greater force has come. And he motivated and he moved Peter in a new direction. And as we'll see in the following chapters of the book of Acts, Peter left his life of fishing now. He finally, he kept going back to fishing, and he was still dabbling with fishing, but he left it behind. He began to pursue his ministry full force of reaching and preaching and teaching and healing and praying and leading the church. And when people who knew Peter, when they saw him before the coming of the Spirit and then met him after the coming of the Spirit, they couldn't recognize him because he was two different individuals. He no longer was a fisherman but he was a fisher of men now. And he was completely different as a human being and as a man. So he repented. He changed his direction. He went a different way. Well, did the people who heard the message, did they repent? Well, we know they did. They go, brothers, what should we do? I love it when people, that's what my sister said to me before she accepted Christ. She only had weeks to live and she said, Kelly, Tell me what to do to be saved. I want to be saved. I told her. She did it. She repented. We prayed. I'm a seer. <laughs> I'm thankful. I won't see all my family there. I'll see her. And it'll be good. They repented. They repented, and he said, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, you will receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all whom are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. So they repented. They were baptized. They waited. And just as the disciples had done, they waited and they received the Spirit. They changed direction. They were now going in a new way with new routines and new habits, new priorities, new destinations, and new outcomes. The Gospel should affect our lives. If we get hit by the force that's greater than us, that moves us in a new direction, our lives should change. Amen? They should be different. I remember that's what I discovered on the Monday after the Sunday I accepted Christ. I was different. And my whole life changed. So much so, when I went back to school, people didn't recognize me. They thought I was a new student at school. Because I was so different. Sometimes you feel like, okay, in the church, I've grown up in the church, I've known Jesus all my life. And you don't feel much different. You've never done anything different. Hey, you don't have to. That's okay. But you keep fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, and you keep open to the Spirit, and you listen, and you wait on Him, and He'll keep changing you. And you'll keep changing, and you'll keep being different, and you'll keep growing. But if you're staying the same, and you've grown up in the church, I'm telling you, that's not God's will for your life. That's not God's intention for any of us. To stay the same. He loves us too much to let us do that. We're to keep growing and changing and moving according to his will and at his speed. And that's what the Spirit brings to us. And so they changed. And all because they waited for the promise of the Spirit, they changed. He came with power. And the disciples kept responding in repentance in their lives, which led them to doing different things. And, and led them to even helping others keep changing and changing. 
See, that's what repentance means. You keep going. You don't repent one time. We repent daily. You keep going in a new direction and in different directions as the Spirit leads. And see, what's really kind of interesting about the Lord, and we come back to physics, you, you, you have this unbalanced force. It's the Spirit. He comes in, bam, he kicks you. He gives you power. You go in a new direction. And we think, well, that's it. It happens one time. Well, no. You know what happens is the Lord goes with us. It says he lives within us. So it's more like he's dribbling the soccer ball. They call it dribbling in soccer, right? As, as the same as basketball. The Lord's with the ball. He's with you. And he keeps moving you in new directions as you join him and, and do his will. So the Lord stays with us and we get filled with the Lord and we get moved by the Lord over and over and over again. So repentance is a daily walk. It's not a one-time occurrence. I hope we know that. Am I still walking in the repentant way? And so they gain this insight and they repent and they commit to walk in this new way because of the insight that's given to them. And then it says that they pray and they keep praying for a plan ahead. Where are we to go next? And really that's the final element for, for really healthy change and real revival to occur. Because like I said, repentance is a daily, daily habit. So I want you to consider the following. Consider the following habits and routines and ways of life that these new believers adopted because the Holy Spirit was moving on their lives and they were repenting and responding by faith. So if you look at verses 42 through 47, which we haven't looked at, it tells us that they were devoted to some things. The Holy Spirit coming caused them to be devoted to some things. And you know what that word devoted means, right? You're enthusiastic about it. You're not enthusiastic because you're made to or you're supposed to. It's just you are. You're enthusiastic. You think about the thing you're enthusiastic about. That's what they were enthused. They were enthused like that. They're enthusiastic. They're committed. Think about the things you're committed to. They were committed now to some things. They were committed. They were caring. Some things really mattered to them. They were generous in giving. And, and this, it, this, this changed then their habits, their routines, and their way of life. It even caused them to fellowship with people they didn't fellowship before, before they were devoted. They didn't fellowship with these people. Now they did because they were devoted. And they didn't do it because anybody expected it of them. Or any leaders told them to do it. It was a natural result of the Holy Spirit's movement and presence. So if you've got a Bible, look again, and you can look on the screen above. And I want you to hear these scriptures and see how they changed. And how God had a plan for them. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they would hear it, but then they would talk about it. And they wouldn't just talk about it, they would look at ways to apply it. Or they'd ask questions to understand it. And they kept after it. Which is what has to do, if truth, if you're going to be devoted to any truth. And if you're going to grow in it. Just to hear something once, move out the door, that's not being devoted. Do you get that? They were devoted. They were enthusiastic. They were in it. It keeps going. And they were, they were devoted to apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were devoted. 
to being with other people and people different than them. They were devoted to breaking of bread, taking the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They were devoted. No one had to make them do this. No one told them that this is what is expected. They did it because of the change that occurred. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They, they weren't, these things were just happening, right? And they had to be committed. They had to trust, but they were happening. And it keeps going on. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold properties and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were majorly generous to each other and to the Lord's work. Wow. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. See, that's what they did culturally. We don't do that culturally. But what it's saying is they didn't forsake the assembling of themselves together. They were excited to be together. They were excited to meet when the church met. They made it a priority to meet together. And it keeps going on. And they weren't doing it because they were supposed to do it or anybody expected it of them. They did it because it was in their heart to do it. They were devoted. And it says it goes on. And they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere heart. That means it was sincere heart means it's just, this, is, this is where you're at now. I'm open to it now, and I'm open to other people. And they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added. See, the Lord was moving and working. It, again, it wasn't a law, or it wasn't a supposed to, or, or let's make sure we get this many by this time. Do you see? It was powerful. Powerful. This movement. And it was one of power and grace. And it started from a relationship and seeking that power from the Lord. Seeking the Lord to actually be Lord in your life. See, modern believers, we can be so man-focused when it comes to evangelism or discipleship or change or how our ministry in the church goes, so much so that we zero in on the pragmatic or what works, the programmatic, what will get us to a desired goal, the science of getting a particular response. And we're good at that in the Western world. And the church is suffering because of it. And believers are suffering because of it. Because so many places we're doing so much without Jesus. And I'm not saying that as being a major negative or downer. I'm saying it because that's what some of my brothers in the Lord have said. <laughs> and that's the reality. But our passage today shows us that we've got to be God-centered and Holy Spirit-centered. And if we want our efforts toward reaching people for Christ and discipling them and our efforts toward change to be effective, to be blessed and wondrous and transforming and lasting, we've got to be God-centered. It's got to be initiated by the power of the Spirit. And we've got to come and seek for that insight. We've got to bow in submission, in repentance. And we've got to seek the Lord for the plan and let Him initiate it. And then follow. Follow and respond. All our goals at disciple-making, leading, or teaching, 
We've got to move people toward relating to and to know and to walk with and serve in obedience a living Savior. Because he lives. Because he lives. We can't have as our goal to make better people. I just want to be a better Christian. Right? Or to be a better practitioner of religion. That's not going to work. And that's not our goal. So this morning, as I, as I wrap this thing up in conclusion, the Holy Spirit of Jesus is the creator, the leader, and initiator of the church. He was at the beginning, and he always will be. Men, sometimes, we try to take control of it and, and hijack it, but the Lord will always come back and get a, get a hold of us, or those efforts will fall off by the wayside in due time. But if we wait and look to him, that's where the church will grow. That's where it will be blessed. So I'm coming to you this morning with these questions. What insight is the Holy Spirit giving you this morning regarding himself? What insight is he giving you regarding change he wants to bring in your life and to you and your partnership and service of him? Are you listening? Are you seeking after that? Are you looking for that? Because until that insight comes, nothing else will change. Not really. It'll just kind of move on the same. Two, what must you do to repent, to get right with him? What must you do this morning to repent and to free yourself from dead habits, routines, priorities, attitudes, ways of thinking? Where do you need to repent so that change can occur? I've told the Lord no at different times. I've struggled with him regarding that. Why in the world do we live in that reality? Why would you tell your Heavenly Father who only wants your best no? Why wouldn't you say yes to him and repent? And say, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go the direction that he's leading and guiding me to go. I'm going to receive that kick and go forward. And move forward because he's giving it to me. Where do we need to repent? And then where is he calling you to new plans? New ways of living to fellowship with him, fellowship with others in a more blessed and devoted way, and serve him and others in a more effective way. Where is he calling you to be more devoted to certain things? And that doesn't mean that you've got to work harder to be more devoted. You might have to work less to be more devoted. <laughs> it's are we seeking his insight? Are we repenting to follow his way? And are we allowing him to cause us to be devoted where we need to be devoted? I want you to stand with me this morning. And I want you to do some business with the Lord. Amen? Amen. As I myself do business with the Lord. Father, we thank